tradition within the family structure. There were two brothers that were once camping, and the first morning they were out camping, they stood by their tent enjoying a cup of coffee, and as they were drinking their first cup of coffee, they noticed that a grizzly bear was running full speed toward them. And one of the brothers bent down and started putting his tennis shoes on. And his other brother said, "Uh, What, you think you can outrun the grizzly bear? And he said, I don't need to outrun the grizzly bear, I just need to outrun you. (laughs) This verse tells us about two brothers. They really weren't competing spiritually, yet one became a man of faith and outran his brother spiritually. The other became really a false worshiper, a pretender. His worship was not accepted because it was not done by faith. And Abel stands out here as the first example of a man who pleased God by faith. I was reading yesterday on an airplane coming back here late last night. There was a Newsweek, in fact, the latest Newsweek, you may have caught it, about declining denominations, that is, people leaving mainline denominations in America choosing other churches for different reasons. And they cited one particular church in Arizona. And they said, uh, everything in this church is designed to meet the needs of non-denominational baby boomers. Be quick is the first commandment. And the pastor said, people aren't interested in traditional doctrines like justification, sanctification, and redemption. And so they tried all sorts of gimmicks. They said every, from Spielberg-type effects to draw people in, to ooh them and to awe them. And the article concludes by saying, The mainline denominations may be dying because they lost their theological integrity, but the only thing worse, perhaps, would be the rise of a new Protestant establishment that succeeds because it never had any. Sort of like the kid who, after going to church one Sunday, he's tucked into bed at night, And his final prayer was, Dear God, thank you. We had a good time at church today, but I wish you'd have been there. That's going to be said more and more of churches as following instead of the way of Abel, we follow the way of Cain. Both Cain and Abel believed in God. They both came to worship. They both came to offer something. One was accepted, one was rejected. And Abel is one who is accepted, and Cain is one who departs from the faith and goes his own way. You know, it's sort of interesting that though they were second generation from creation, and Cain was able to hear from his mom and dad, Adam and Eve, about what God did and about the fall and about the creation and what it was like to name all the animals and what his dad thought about when he saw the first zebra and on and on and on. And just how God works. Even though he was so close to creation, even though mom and dad received first-hand knowledge from God, yet Cain is one who falls away from the Lord. He becomes the prototype of a religious hypocrite. William Gurnall once wrote, None sink so far into hell as those who come nearest heaven because they fall from the greatest height. Now verse 4 is the first example in this list of men and women of faith of a person who exhibited exactly the life of faith. Now there's a premise we haven't covered so far, but uh, look back at chapter 10, 
verse 38. It's a premise that the entire book of Hebrews is founded upon. Now the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. That's the premise of Hebrews. The first few verses of chapter 11 explain kind of what faith is, and then we have the first example of a man who lives by faith, named Abel. The just shall live by faith. That was the clarion call that motivated Martin Luther in the Great Reformation period, to stand by faith alone, not by works, not by religious activity, but by faith in God. As we look at verse 4, we see that Abel's faith produces three things. It produced three things. Number one, it produced an acceptable sacrifice, or a better sacrifice than his brother. For we read, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Now, we ought to go back to Genesis chapter 4. In fact, turn there with me to get the full story. Genesis chapter 4 is the story of Cain and Abel, the second or the third and the fourth human beings on the earth. It says, now Adam knew Eve. That is, they consummated their relationship physically. And she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. She bore again, this time, his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep. He was a rancher. But Cain was a tiller of the ground. He was a farmer. In the process of time, it came to pass that Ain brought a Cain brought an offering of fruit of the ground to the Lord, and so Abel also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering. Both Cain and Abel were born after the fall, outside of the Garden of Eden and under the curse of sin. Even though mom and dad were godly parents, not perfect parents, but godly parents for the most part, they did fall, they did fail, they did have a sin nature, and they did disobey God, they also believed in God and provided an advantage for their kids to believe in God. In uh, verses 3 through 5, actually, uh, let's just finish out this little story. In verse 4, Abel brought the firstlings. We read that in verse 5. Verse 6, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you so angry? Why is your countenance falling? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin lies at the door. Its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose against Abel, his brother, and killed him. The Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And so now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. It would seem from the text that God had somehow revealed, told Cain and Abel, how he wanted to be worshipped. There was a prescribed way of approach, a prescribed time in the process of time, or literally at the end of a certain amount of prescribed days, Cain and Abel brought an offering unto the Lord. 
Now it could be that God just told them verbally, worship me this way at this time in this manner. Or it could be, and probably this is the scenario, Adam and Eve, their parents, told them how God wanted to be worshipped. They sat down and told them all about the fall and what happened after the fall and what God prescribed as the accurate means of worship. Now let's go back into chapter 3 and notice a couple of verses with Adam and Eve. In verse 6, So the woman saw that the tree was good for food. It was pleasant for the eyes. It was desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and she ate it. She also gave it to her husband and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife Eve hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to Adam and said, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded that you should not eat? The man said, The woman that you gave me to be with me, it's her fault. The Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? And the woman said, The devil made me do it. The serpent deceived me and I ate. Now look over at verse uh, 20. Adam called his wife, called her name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and he clothed them. What I think happened is this. Adam and Eve sat their kids down and said, look, let me tell you what happened. We fell by disobeying God. We sinned. When we did that, we discovered we were naked physically and spiritually. We wanted to cover ourselves up, so we made a covering of leaves. God didn't accept that covering. Instead, what God did is kill innocent animals and take their skins to make tunics for us. And so Cain and Abel, there is a right way and a wrong way to approach God. We found that out. Now the fall has occurred. Now we are all under the curse of sin. And if you want to approach God, you need an adequate covering because we're all naked before God. We found that out. You need the right kind of covering. Secondly, Cain and Abel, God won't accept your own garments. You can't just walk along and find a sheet or a bunch of leaves and put it around you. God won't accept that. And thirdly, the covering for your sin must come from the killing of an innocent victim. Blood must be shed, and that's the only adequate means of covering for your sin and approach to God. Now, already in Genesis, we who are in the New Testament have a vantage point. We can see a highway to the cross, right? We see that there was one lamb for one person. Later on, it becomes a little different. We have the Passover of Israel. It becomes one lamb for one household. Later on, we have the Day of Atonement. One lamb for one nation, the nation of Israel. And then we come to Good Friday, the cross. One lamb for the whole world, Jesus Christ. But at the beginning, the approach to God is the same. By faith that we have fallen... We need an adequate covering, and it comes to the blood of an innocent victim. Cain and Abel represent two classes of individuals. 
One a religious person, the other a righteous person. A religious person who went through the motions of worship, a righteous person who offered the sacrifice by faith, and God said, that is a better sacrifice. Why? It was better because Abel realized the life of faith begins with a sacrifice for sin and no other place. That's where the life of faith begins, the shedding of blood for the remission of sins. So when he came and he offered his animal sacrifice, it wasn't that God liked meat over vegetables. The idea is he said, I recognize from my parents that I now have a sin nature. We have fallen and there's only one means to approach and by faith I believe that if I approach you this way, you will cover my sin. Cain, on the other hand, did it his way. He thought, no, I want to do my own thing. I have a different concept of God. I want to bring my own sacrifice, a self-imposed religion, rather than how God prescribed that he ought to approach God with. You might look at it this way. Abel brought what God wanted. Cain brought what Cain wanted. I remember when I was entering high school, And I was rationalizing my sinful behavior before I met Jesus Christ. And when a person rationalizes sinful behavior, there are all sorts of warped thinking develops. And I remember consciously thinking, God wants me to be happy. That's God's objective in my life. And I am happy doing this and that. And whatever I want to indulge in, that brings me happiness and pleasure. Therefore, God wants me to do those things. That's how I'll approach God. Abel approached God with his own philosophy, his own reason, rather than God's method. In the New Testament, folks, and that's really where we live, Jude, the apostle, warns us to avoid the way of Cain. To avoid the way of Cain. Now, what's the way of Cain? Well, we know that Cain was religious. If he wasn't religious, if he didn't believe in God, he wouldn't have brought a sacrifice to begin with. He wasn't an atheist. He was a religious person. He believed in God, but he did not believe God. He believed in a supernatural being, like a lot of people today, a higher power, but he didn't believe God's revelation. He didn't say, I'll do what God prescribed in bringing the sacrifice that God wants. He set aside blood and the coming and approach by blood for his own style. Whenever you set aside the blood of Jesus Christ for any other approach, you have the way of Cain. If you're a kind of person who says, no, 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 I approach God by meditating on my mantra. And I say my mantra over and over and I get close to God. No, you don't. It's a delusion. Oh, I have crystals and I channel energy into these crystals. And this field is set up spiritually. You don't approach God. It's religious, but it's a false religion. Well, I approach God through rituals and ceremonies. You only approach God by the blood of Jesus Christ. In the New Testament book of Acts, Peter declared, There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's a lot of religious people who are deluded into thinking they're doing it right. And they have never stopped to consider, is this the way God revealed it in his book, in the scriptures. And it's a deception. Somebody said religion is one of those notoriously elastic words that adorn a multitude of virtues and cover an equal number of sins. 
Solomon said that there's a way that seems right unto a man, but all the ends thereof are the ways of death. People do have right ways. They have ways that they think are right. They have carved out for themselves a certain path. It fits them. They like that. It's not for you maybe, but it's for me. And if you're into that and you're into this, it doesn't matter. There is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Broadening the path. I don't know if you caught this or not, but the other night, Barbara Walters was interviewing Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise has been delving into Scientology, the philosophy of L. Ron Hubbard. And she said, why did you get into Scientology? He said, because I was born with dyslexia. And this new method, I believe in myself and it's changed my life forever. It's helped me to overcome dyslexia. Barbara Walters said, but Tom... Does this help you spiritually? Is it a religion for you? And he responded by saying, Yes, it is a religion, but it's not someone feeding you something or telling you what to do. It is self-exploration. You find your own way. You find your own way. That's the essence of the way of Cain, basically. You find your own way. You do your own thing. And you're welcome to do that. You're welcome to do that. It is a free country. But approach to God is only one way, through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. And eternity will bear that out. There's an old proverb that says, The beauty of the tiger's skin does not lessen the sharpness of his teeth. A lot of people go to church to feel good about themselves, but wearing a tie and a suit and carrying the right book around and saying the right words doesn't lessen the reality of a person's heart. If your, person's, if your heart hasn't been changed before God in the inner man, you've not committed yourself to Jesus Christ, then it's different. Now, a lot of people complain that Christianity is too narrow, too dogmatic. I've been called narrow-minded many times. I've shared the gospel with people, and often they'll stop. You know what? You're narrow-minded. I usually respond by saying, you're wrong. I'm close-minded. At least be accurate. It's not a narrow mind. I'm absolutely closed to any other way of approach to God. Because Jesus said, you will know the truth. The truth will make you free. At one time, I was open to anything and everything. And some people pride themselves in being open-minded. Open minds are good in some areas. But when it comes to eternal truth, it's a detriment. Because there's lots of people that would love to dump their philosophy into any open mind, which can become a garbage dump. You'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. It's interesting that this whole notion that any way is an okay way only seems to be acceptable when it comes to religion and morality. Have you noticed that? In every other area of life, that's an unacceptable way of thinking. Only in religion is any way okay acceptable. What if you went to a doctor and he said any way is okay? What if you had some problem and he diagnosed your situation and he found the heart of the matter and he said, doctor, what do I need to do? You know, I want to find the right cure for this thing. What if he said all roads lead to health? As long as you feel good about yourself, that's really the important issue. Find your own way. 
just as long as you're happy. You'd say, you're a quack. I have a disease. I want the correct remedy. Well, mankind has a disease called sin, and there's only one remedy. And any other approach is wrong, and it's the way of Cain. Abel, by faith, believed God, took the remedy, and by faith, he pleased God. Not only did he bring a better sacrifice, but verse 4 tells us that his faith produced something else, a testimony of righteousness. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts. That sort of follows up what verse 2 says, For by faith the elders obtained a good testimony. Now what does that mean, that God testified to Abel's gifts? Well, it could be that God simply spoke verbally and said, Good job, Abel. Bad job, Cain. I accept yours, I don't accept yours. Or it could mean, as I read other Old Testament scriptures, that God caused fire to come down from heaven and consume that sacrifice. On five separate occasions in the Old Testament, when God approved a sacrifice, He did that. One notable example is Elijah on Mount Carmel. As he had that contest between the prophets of Baal and himself, actually between their false gods and the true God, The pagan gods were cutting themselves and chanting their mantras up and down. And Elijah finally got sick of it and said, Lord, show yourself strong that you're the God in Israel. Fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice on the altar. When Solomon dedicated the temple, he offered a sacrifice, the bullocks, and fire came down and consumed them. God's demonstrating or testifying that it was done in righteousness. Okay. A word that's very important here is the word righteous. God gave testimony that this character Abel was righteous. That doesn't mean he was flawless, that he was perfect. It means God declared him righteous. He declared him righteous. Now, it could be true that Abel was a nicer person than his brother. He didn't have a law. He had a a longer... um, Uh, temper, and he wasn't so short-tempered, he wasn't so angry, he was a nice fella. But those things didn't make his sacrifice pleasing to God. What made his sacrifice pleasing to God is he just trusted God. He believed God. He believed what God said. He did what God said. And God gave him a verdict. He proclaimed him righteous. That's an important thing that you must go away with this morning. Righteousness is not something you work at to become. Though, as Christians, we should be becoming more and more holy. That's being sanctified. I know that's one of the words the pastor from Arizona said people aren't interested in. But you better find out what that is. But being justified is to be declared righteous. A sinner comes and says, look, I'm a sinner, I admit it, right? Now I want your salvation. Save me from my sins. Changed my life. At that moment, instantly, he is justified. God declares him righteous. He's not perfect, but God declares him righteous. Righteousness is imputed by God and imparted through faith. And then God starts treating that person as if that person is righteous because God declared him that way. Basically, there's two ways, there's two kinds of righteousness. 
God's righteousness that He gives you freely. He declares that you're righteous, even though you're a sinner. When you believe in Him, He says, All right, I'm treating you like you're righteous. It's just as if you never sinned. Or the other way is self-righteousness. There's only two forms of righteousness. God's way or self-righteousness. There are many people who say, No, don't need to admit that I'm a sinner. Don't need to go that far. I'll just work really hard at being a good person. By myself, I will become righteous. Charles Spurgeon said, Nothing damns a man but his own righteousness, and nothing can save him but the righteousness of Christ. Abel understood that. He's not going to bring some work of his hands. He's going to bring the prescribed sacrifice by faith. By faith. But that's not all. Though God declares that a person is righteous, it's a verdict, a divine verdict, a divine position, changes do occur. Abel not only believed, but he acted on what he believed. Remember the definition of faith from last week. That it's the solid assurance that what God said is true that prompts a person to action. Prompts a person to action. And that's exactly what Abel did. He was prompted to right behavior. Faith not only procures the remedy, but it produces obedience. James says, faith without works is dead. If you play sports whether it's baseball or basketball or uh, golf. In some of those sports, the coaches always tell you that the follow-through is important. You know what that is. It's not just the action of hitting the ball. It's the action that occurs after the ball is hit. You've hit the ball, that's one thing, but what you do with that club as you follow through will often determine the destiny. You're saved by faith, but faith and works go together. Works are the follow-through to faith. And so it produces an obedient life. Now, I think at this point, in looking at the lives of Cain and Abel, it's good to just brief ourselves once again in the differences between God's righteousness in the gospel and man's religion. Because, as we said, Cain was a religious guy. Abel was a righteous man who came by God's way. First of all, religion emphasizes the outward Always concerned about the outward. How you look, how you talk, if you have the right book. Those are important things to some degree. But God always emphasizes the heart, not the outward. He's always looking on the inward. Cain made a great show, but he had a form of godliness only. Now that's the danger of a religion devoid of Christ. It's all symbolism, and it is no substance. Anybody can wear the right clothes, carry the right book, and say, Praise the Lord, hallelujah, bless God. Anybody can do that, but it must be followed by an inward reality, a heart that is set upon God. Tim Downs once said, Cars, watches, and Christians can all look chromed and shiny on the outside, but watches won't tick, cars won't run, and Christians won't make a difference without insides. It's insides that God's concerned about. Secondly, religion always tries to broaden the path. You know what God does? He narrows it. He closes it. You know, people don't think of God that way. They think God is this benevolent old guy with a beard and a staff, kind of going ho, ho, ho on the clouds. and just It's a broad way. It's not. In one sense, it's broad because God said anybody and everybody can be saved and come to truth and come to knowledge, and I'll 
provide, and so on and so forth. But Jesus said, narrow is the way that leads to life. Very few find it. Broad is the way that leads to destruction, and most people enter therein. He said there's only one path. Jesus Christ himself said that. Religion declares, no, there are many ways to God. Many roads. Now, on the broad road, it's an easier way. You've got a lot of company. There's a lot of people. You can get away with being a religious person. If you believe in a higher power, that's all right. Just don't be too dogmatic, all right? Just don't start saying this is the way, the truth, the life. Hey, there's room for all of us. A couple years ago, I was in Israel speaking with our tour guide. We had one of those intense conversations. He's an Orthodox Jew. And we were sharing about the differences between Judaism and Christianity. He said, listen, us Jews are more broad-minded. He said, we believe that if you are monotheistic, you'll be in heaven. If you're a Muslim or a Christian or a Jew, you'll go to heaven. And he cited other religions that are broad-minded. But he said, you know what? You Christians are narrow. You believe that only people who trust in Jesus Christ will be saved. When he said that, it dawned, it just struck me. I thought, why don't more Christians understand what he just understood? That's the truth. Jesus said, narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. Thirdly, religion says, work your way to God by good works, by rituals, by something you do. God says, no, don't work your way to God. I've worked your way already to God. I've done it all. The debt has been paid. There's the cross. Just come by faith, by the blood of an already slain victim, the Son, the Son of God. And come by faith. I've already done the work. Religion can become deceptive because it sets these little standards. If you go to church on these days, if you say these prayers, if you do these rituals, you'll be good and God will accept you. They set some kind of a standard so that when we keep the standard, we feel smug and good about ourselves. I've done something for God. The gospel does the opposite. It reveals not our goodness, but our badness. It shines the light of truth that says you are a sinner and you need a Savior. And that drives us to say, oh God, I can't do it alone. Please, I trust in your son, Jesus Christ. Save me from my sins. During the Civil War, in some of the darkest times, President Lincoln went to church and as he was accustomed to doing, trusting the Lord, reading the scriptures. But he went to one church. The minister saw President Lincoln in the crowd. And so he bowed his head at the end of the service. And the minister, among his other prayers, said, And Lord, we pray that you would please be on our side. Mr. Lincoln, after the service, put his arm around the minister and said, You know, I've, never, I, I've learned to never say, God, be on our side. But God, let me be on your side. He said, that's really the key. It isn't do whatever you want and say, God be on my side. I decide to worship you this way. I picture you this way. Please agree with me. Pat me on the back. But God, I want to be on your side. I want to follow your revelation, not my own reason. Abel did that. And his sacrifice was acceptable. And finally, thirdly, in the passage, we see that his faith produced a continuing, enduring message. Look at verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. And though he being dead, still speaks. 
He still speaks. In other words, Abel still has a message. Here's a guy removed by thousands of years. He had far less spiritual light than we have today, being New Testament Christians. But even though he's been dead a long time, because he lived a life of faith, he has an enduring message to teach sophisticated, technological 20th century mankind. It has been said that uh, dead men tell no tales. It's not true. Dead men have a message. In fact, James Moffat said, Death is never the last word. When a man leaves this world, be he righteous or unrighteous, he leaves something in the world. He may leave something that will grow and spread like a cancer or poison, or he may leave something like the fragrance of perfume or the blossom of beauty that permeates the atmosphere with beauty. The secret to a successful life is to spend it on something that will outlast it. Like that often quoted poem, you are writing a gospel a chapter each day by the things that you do and the words that you say. People see what you, or people hear what you say and they see what you do, so what is the gospel according to you? Well, Abel lived it and now he becomes an example. Though he's dead, he still has a message for us. And the message is something we already covered. First of all, number one, man must come to God by faith, not by works. Simply because there's no work you can do that's good enough. Admit that. There's nothing you can do religiously, ceremonially, that God would look at and say, Now that is so good, I can't help but let you in heaven. You've earned it. In fact, it's so good, my son didn't even have to die for you. There is no work that is good enough to purchase salvation. That's why Jesus came to die. In fact, trying to work your way to God is an insult to God. It's saying the blood of your son isn't good enough. I've got to feel good about myself. You can't come to God that way. That's what Abel's life says to us today. Secondly, he says that true worship must be God-instructed worship. You can't decide to go your own way and do your own thing when it comes to the worship of God. You must abide by His revelation, not by your own reason. And thirdly, we didn't cover this yet. But the righteous will be persecuted by the unrighteous. Abel offered a more pleasing sacrifice to God, but because of that... First John tells us that Abel, Cain killed his brother Abel because Abel offered a more righteous sacrifice. He was jealous. And it's always been the case. The ungodly will persecute those who live by faith. So if you're ever wondering, golly, how come at work they hassle me and my family hassles me because I'm a Christian and maybe I'll arrive at some plateau in my Christian life where that won't happen. They did it to Jesus, they'll do it to you. Jesus said, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Beware of men, for brother will deliver up brother to the council, and you will be hated by all men for my name's sake. Organized religion has always persecuted the true righteous, always. If you go over to Russia today, and you see groups of people turned on to the gospel, they are being persecuted, not by governments, not by officials, but by the old mainline churches who don't want the gospel to spread. Paul the Apostle was persecuted by the religions of Ephesus. Jesus was persecuted by the Pharisees. Martin Luther and the Reformers were persecuted by the organized church of their time. And the last great persecution that will come upon God's saints will come from a religious institution known as Mystery Babylon the Great, 
a great religious system that unleashes hatred against God's people. So, this morning there's two men, Cain and Abel. Two men who made two choices to worship two ways. Abel believed God, and because he believed God, he went on to show that he believed God by offering the right sacrifice. It was a testimony of faith, and his life went on to endure as a message forever. Cain, on the other hand, progressively showed a lack of faith. He came his own way, with his own works. He hated grace, and he persecuted eventually the objects of grace. That's the way of Cain. Where do you stand? Maybe you've heard the gospel so many times, so many weeks, so many years. You know, the danger of the gospel in America is that people have heard it but not heeded it. And the greatest inoculation to the gospel is the gospel itself. Heard but not heeded. Listened to but not obeyed. Abel heard it and he obeyed. I've heard that in the Midwest, there's an unusual courthouse situated on top of a hill. It's in such a place that when it rains, raindrops that hit one side of the roof drain off into the Great Lakes and it's carried into the Atlantic Ocean. Raindrops falling on the other side fall off of the roof, go into the Ohio River and the Mississippi and eventually the Gulf of Mexico. Just one little breath of wind can determine the destiny of those little drops. Abel made a choice early on to live by faith. I will trust God's revelation. I will come His way. I will approach God by the sacrifice of a substitute. And his destiny was a life pleasing to God, an example of faith, and eternity with God. Cain says, I'll go my own way. And he was carried off the other side. Decisions do determine destiny. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. There's a way of death or there's a way of life. And so, Father, we pray that we would choose your way It's not only the only acceptable way, it's the smartest move. When you've provided so much that all we have to do is come by faith and trust you and give you our lives, it's absolutely ridiculous to try to approach you in any other way. Lord, I pray that we would be men of faith, women of faith, who count on the sacrifice of Calvary as sufficient penalty for sin. And we would worship not just to feel good about ourselves, but to glorify you and do it in a way that is pleasing to you, that we would trust your revelation rather than our reason. Father, we finally pray for those who may have come this morning. They believe in you, but they don't believe you personally. And I pray, Father, that you would bring them to a saving faith. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name.